Have you ever noticed that the lower jaw is not protected in sports? Did you know that 10,800 concussions will happen today? This has been an upward trend for the past 50 years. I'm Dr. Michael Hutchison, a practicing neuromuscular dentist. When my son wanted to participate in football and rugby, I was afraid he was going to get a concussion. That fear led me to finding the missing link to reducing concussions. The fact is, the only part of the skull that is not protected in sports is the lower jaw. If you want to drastically reduce concussions, there are three basic jaw positions that affect concussions and two of them are not good. The correct one is called physiologic jaw position. It will dissipate the force away from the brain. Knowing that, I designed an appliance that put my son's jaw in the right place and as a result, he was concussion-free from fifth grade all the way to senior year. This job position takes those 10,800 concussions today down to 28. It's the key to concussion protection. As a parent, this is what you need to know. It's extremely important that the device you are using is on the lower jaw. Thickness of the device is important. Most importantly, it must position and hold you in your own unique personal physiologic jaw position. So if your child goes out on the field with the correct jaw position, your son or daughter will not one of those 10,800 concussions today. Get yours today at powerplusmouthguard.com. Use the promo code POWERUP2023 for 10% off. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me tell you all about it. First of all, it's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So download the free Anchor app now or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening to the Pigskin Tales podcast. This story was written and produced by your host, Ross Blyley, edited by Nikki Blyley. Be sure to follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Ross Fancast. If you like what you hear, you can support me on anchor.fm and Patreon. Have you ever wondered how former NFL players made it to the pros? I bet you've got questions and I hope I've got answers. Like, how did they do in high school? How did they do in college? What was it like to play with tough coaches back in the day? Well, sit back and relax. I try to answer all your questions as best I can. At six foot three and 220 pounds, he was considered old reliable. He won two National Football League championships in his short professional career. His longevity in the front office garnered him respect among his peers. He will forever be immortalized in purple and gold for his contributions to the franchise. This is Pigskin Tales, the story of... Jerry, old reliable Rykow. 
If we compare our modern selves to past history, then the coronavirus pandemic struggles we have begun to overcome are similar to those that Americans went through in the 1930s. The biggest difference, though, is that they were not in a pandemic and didn't have to wear masks to prevent a virus from killing several hundreds of thousands of innocent people. But what is similar is that the financial strain of the stock market crash in 1929 took a devastating toll on people's jobs and families, and the virus has shut down small to medium-sized businesses, therefore putting people out of work and financially straining families. In the late 1920s to early 1930s, President Hoover said patience and self-reliance were all that Americans needed to get them through this passing incident in our lives. Similarly, modern-day President Trump has argued the same for Americans going through the COVID-19 pandemic. When FDR was elected president in 1932, he pledged to Americans that a new deal would help those that are struggling instill a much higher faith in the government. Similarly, President-elect Joe Biden has pledged to Americans at the beginning of his term in January 2021 that faith in the nation's government will restore once the COVID-19 virus has been contained and nearly everyone in America vaccinated. Businesses will forge ahead and restore much-needed jobs and help struggling families with their basic needs. While no one knows what the future will bring in 2021, we all hope the next year will be better. Garrett Neil Reichow was born on May 19, 1934. When you hear that he was raised in Iowa, you think of corn. Then you begin to think of the baseball movie Field of Dreams. And when you think of Field of Dreams, you begin to think of Kevin Costner and that one famous line of, If you build it, they will come. Nevertheless, Jerry Reichow did grow up in Iowa, specifically Decorah, a town of about 5,000 people. According to the IAHSAA website, in the early 1950s, Reichow's Decorah team did not earn any appearances to the state football tournament. However, individually, he earned all state honors in 1951 and a chance to play college football for the University of Iowa. By the time Reichow left Iowa and was drafted into the American Football League in 1956, he had won Most Valuable Player and All-Big Ten Conference quarterback honors. In addition, he set the all-time record for total offense in Iowa University history. The best record during his time in college was 5-3-1 and, and had the team ranked ninth in the nation. In an interview with Bob Christ in 2015, Reichow remembers his first game in college. It was my first game as a starter, and we were playing Michigan at Michigan, he said. There were 103,000 fans, or 106, or whatever there were. I grew up in a town of 5,000, so it seemed like a million to me. In those days, everyone went both ways and never left the field. So I was on the kickoff team and was all pumped up and jumping up and down. Then I went down and I hit the ball carrier right on the knee, and I looked down and I see my teeth on the ground. Pretty much the whole upper side of my mouth was bleeding and whatnot, but I kept playing. After the tackle was made, the officials threw a flag for an offsides penalty on Iowa. The final score was 14-13. Iowa lost. 
1956, Nick Kerbawi, the general manager of the Detroit Lions, drafted the Iowa product to play football professionally. Reichau remembers when he first arrived in Detroit. Veteran quarterback Bobby Lane and teammates told him they were going out for a drink. It was Lane, Don McClanahenny, and Howard Hopalong Cassidy. McClanahenny obviously hadn't been much of a drinker because Lane wiped him out early, Rykow recalled. Soon after, Lane told survivors Rykow and Cassidy they were going to join him and his other buddies for dinner downtown. He ordered, Cuddy Sark and water for all the boys, Rykow said. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about because in Iowa, all we had was 3-2 beer. A short time later, Cassidy didn't last long and down he went. Then Lane turned to me and said, You're my rookie. At the time, I said, Oh boy! But I wasn't so sure it was a good thing because every night it was, Come on, Rook, we're going out. At the morning meeting, sometimes Bobby would sit next to me and smell like whiskey. I was like, Oh wow, Bobby, turn the other way! His breath was atrocious, but... He was ready to go. For me, envisioning that scene in the late 50s is incomprehensible. Then again, after some of the stories I've written, it isn't out of the norm to find out that a lot of pro football players liked to drink heavily back in the day. Reichau's career with the Lions ended premature due to injuries, but he was able to be part of a championship team in 1957. That was the last time the Lions have won a championship. What will it take to win a Super Bowl? Ask any modern fan. They will give you the honest truth. During the 57 championship game against Cleveland, Reichau remembers throwing the last and only passing touchdown in his playing career. It was during garbage time and it made the score 59-14. Dan Colo, a defensive lineman for the Browns, told me, You son of a beep! Passing the ball now? I said, man, I don't ever get to play. I'm passing when I can. Two seasons later, Rykow was traded to the Washington Redskins, but he barely played because of injuries. He was then traded to the Eagles in 1960 so that he could learn the role of quarterback from Norm Van Brocklin. There was one problem with taking on that role, though. Sonny Jurgensen was already the backup for Van Brock. So, there he was again, in a role that barely gave him a chance to play. While playing special teams is great, being able to play quarterback was better and to learn the game at a much higher level than he originally had known was what he really wanted to do. But dang it, Jurgensen was just too good. Coach Shaw had him play tight end and wide receiver on offense and gunner on special teams. The tight end position was where he was able to take his NFL game to the next level. Then, starting quarterback Norm Van Brocklin and head coach Buck Shaw guided the Eagles to their third NFL championship in franchise history. Reichau contributed to the team by playing in 12 games, mostly blocking and keeping Van Brocklin's blindside as clean as possible. During the championship game against the Packers, Reichau made a key block to spring kickoff returner and starting running back Ted Dean to a 59-yard return. The Eagles won their first championship since 1949 with the score of 17 to 13. Franklin Field in Philadelphia is the arena for this world championship battle between the Eastern Conference champions, the Philadelphia Eagles, and the Green Bay Packers, rulers of the Western Conference. The fabulous Dutchman, Norm Van Brocklin, earned the league's most valuable player award for his role in the Eagles' flight to victory. 
Packers move in the first period after recovering an eagle fumble. Paul Harding drives over the left side for five yards. Our ground camera watches Jim Taylor take a handoff from Bart Starr. Jim banks to the eagle 11. A penalty each time he's the Packers and Paul Horning tries a field goal. Paul's boot soars through the blue. Referee Ron Gibbs signals the kick is good and the Packers from Green Bay have drawn first blood as they take an early 3-0 lead. The Packers work the trap play to perfection. Jim Taylor finds the hole and runs rough shot for a 13-yard pickup. The first quarter ends with Green Bay leading 3-0. Bart Starr opens the second period by pitching a perfect strike to Boyd Daller. It's another first down on the Eagle 15. Three straight incomplete passes force the Packers to try for three points. Horning connects from the 23-yard line. The Packers post a 6-0 lead early in the second period. The Eagles finally get moving. Van Brocklin drops back, and it's Tommy McDonald slanting across the middle. The Eagles speed merchant gets to the Packer 35 before he's stopped by Hank Reminger. Again, Van Brocklin goes back and looks for McDonald. Tommy's open on the seven to take Van's pass into the end zone for the first touchdown of the game. Bobby Walston adds the point, and it's 7-6 Eagles. Packers fail to move, and Van Brocklin continues his long-range bombing. Pete Retzlaff makes a beautiful catch. The play nets 41 yards to the Packer 33. Packers are wary of the long pass, so Van shoots a swing pass to Ted Dean. Ted makes a perfect cutback and fights to the 8-yard line. Packer defense stiffens, and Bobby Walston tries a field goal from the 15. The kick is good. It's Eagles 10, Green Bay 6 at halftime. Eagle fans hope their birds can hold the lead for two more periods to become world champions. In the third quarter, Van Brocklin wastes little time in dropping back and looking for McDonald. Van finds Tommy slanting through the Packers secondary. Jesse Whittenden makes the tackle, but the Birds have a first down on the Green Bay 40. The Eagles move closer, and our slow-motion camera sees Van Brocklin roll out to his right. The Dutchman aims for McDonald, but John Simank goes high to pull down the pass. A great play by Simank, and it's first and ten Green Bay on the 20. The Eagle defense holds the Packers, and Max McGee is back to punt. Max fakes and then takes off on a dangerous mission through the Eagles. McGee gets 35 yards before he's nailed by Ted Dean on the Eagle 45. Starr keeps the Packers moving as he connects with Gary Canapel on the Eagle 32. The third quarter ends with the Eagles ahead, 10-6. As the fourth period opens, let's watch in slow motion as Tom Moore follows number 64, Jerry Kramer, around left end. Maxie Vaughn rolls off Kramer's block and hits into Moore. Tom gets eight yards on the play, and it's first and goal from the 10. 
on second down. Bart Starr fires to Max McGee, slanting into the end zone for a Green Bay touchdown. Horning adds the conversion, and the Packers take the lead, 13 to 10. Paul Horning kicks off for Green Bay. Ted Dean takes it on the two. The Eagles clear a path for Ted up the left side. Tim Brown, number 22, leads the way for Dean. Willie Wood makes the stop on the Packer 39. A beautiful 59-yard return for Mr. Dean. Van Brocklin flips a quick pass to Billy Barnes. Billy scrambles for 13 yards to the Packer 14. Ted Dean is red hot and Van sends him wide. Dean blazes by the stunned Packers. Jerry Hugh throws the key block and Dean goes in for the score. Walston converts to make it 17 to 13 Eagles. The Eagles hold the Packers the rest of the way to win their first world championship since 1949 with a brilliant come from behind victory. With two NFL championship rings, both Rykow and Van Brocklin became part of the expansion Minnesota Vikings in the spring of 1961. Van Brocklin was hired as the team's first head coach and Rykow was a veteran tight end and wide receiver brought over in a trade only four days before the Vikings were supposed to play the Bears. He knew Van Brocklin's offense so well that he transitioned pretty easily. One problem, though, was that no one else knew his style of coaching. A team of misfits were put together for him, and he was expected to win many games with a brand new team no one knew of. Fran Tarkenton was drafted to lead the Vikings, but he butted heads with Van Brocklin often. We all know how the rest turned out, but as far as our guy Reichow turned out, he had played his best football for the Vikings in 1961. All he needed was a chance to show his skills, and Van Brocklin provided that chance for him. In his first game with the Vikings, Reichow became Tarkenton's favorite target. He scored three receiving touchdowns and netted 103 yards. As you know, the Vikings routed the Bears 37-13. Reichow ended the season with 50 catches for 859 yards and 11 total touchdowns, as well as became one of two original Vikings to earn Pro Bowl honors in the franchise's first season. Over the course of the next three seasons with Minnesota, he caught eight more touchdowns on 94 passes from Tarkenton, gaining 1,324 yards. Even though he wasn't the biggest, nor was he the fastest player on the team, he was reliable. That's where he gets his nickname from, Old Reliable, a veteran guy who knew his role and played it extremely well. In the spring of 1965, Coach Van Brocklin called Old Reliable into his office. Now, this didn't actually happen, but I can envision this scene playing out. Van Brocklin said, Jerry, I know you're a veteran guy on this team and one hell of a great guy off the field, but I need someone in the front office, someone who knows the game as well as you do. We're going to have to let you go, but I'm hiring you right back as a scout for the rest of the year. We need someone to go look at some college kids and give their opinion about whether or not we should draft them, and I think you're just the guy for the job. What do you think? After a long pause, Jerry responds with, Well, since I'm committed to this team and have high passion for football, and if there's a way to keep me doing what I love for this franchise, then I will do what I can to help make this team successful. 
In an interview with Bob Christ in 2015 for the Albuquerque Journal, Reichel remembered when he was again called to Van Brocklin's office in 1966 and was told that he would become the franchise's first director of scouting. He responded with a question. Who am I going to direct? I'm the only scout that you have. He then told Van Brocklin that he would only accept the new role as director of scouting if the team would pay to subscribe to the scouting service Blesto. They agreed, shook hands, and to this day still subscribe to the service. According to the book 100 Things Vikings Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, written by Mark Craig, Reichow discussed payment as well as how easy the job was at first. I made $17,000 when I was named personnel director in 1966. And of course, it wasn't hard directing since I was the only person in the department to direct. But when he was asked how tough the job was, he said, well, let's just say you wouldn't want to start figuring out what you made an hour. Being a scout is hectic and tough. The job wears on you, it really does. Today, there's a lot more of them now. The owners are involved, scouts, the salary cap guy. Owners didn't used to come in. It was so much easier back then without extra people in there telling you this and that. What I do is I give my stuff to the scouting department and give my feelings on some of them. But I don't know. They might just throw it in the wastebasket for all I know. Craig went on to ask about his first draft as a scout in 1965. Well, it was in December and it started at 8 a.m. on a Saturday and went straight through to Sunday night. The only people in the draft room were me, my little charts, Finks, and Norm Van Brocklin. And Van Brocklin had to leave Sunday morning because he had to go coach the team. At that time, there were 20 rounds to the draft and 280 players were chosen. Now, modern day, there's only 7 rounds to the draft, but only 254 players are chosen among 32 clubs. With the 8th overall pick in the 1965 draft, Reichow influenced Finks to take a wide receiver out of Notre Dame named Jack Snow. Snow played in 29 total games as a Fighting Irish, gaining over 1,200 career receiving yards and 10 touchdowns. As a senior, he was a consensus pick to be included on the All-America team for catching 60 passes and 9 touchdowns from All-American quarterback John Huarte and gaining 1,114 yards, which is an average of 18.6 yards per catch. With Reichow's information, Finks decided to draft Snow because he had elite tools as a receiver. First, he was 6'2 and 215. Second, he had excellent speed with smooth moves. Third, his route running ability was clever enough to gain separation from defensive backs. And fourth, he had soft hands. He could catch nearly anything, any pass thrown his way. However, he was traded to the Los Angeles Rams instead. With Tarkenton under center at that time, many older fans of the Vikings believe Snow would have made a huge impact in the passing game. Snow ended his 11-season NFL career with the Rams, playing in 150 games, catching 45 touchdowns and gaining over 6,000 receiving yards. The rest of the 1965 draft class of the Vikings included tackle Archie Sutton, receiver Lance Rensel, tight end Jim Whalen, defensive tackle Jim Harris, back Jim Gresham, uh, quarterback John Hankinson, defensive back Jeff Jordan, tackle Frank McClendon, tackle Jared Schweiger and John Thomas, defensive tackle Mike Tillman, running back Dave Osborne, 
Defensive end Max Letso, back Philip Morgan, tackle Paul Lebinski, back Varen Smith, tight end Rich Cody, halfback Ellis Johnson, and finally halfback Cosmo Ayakavazi out of Princeton. And out of those 20 players chosen in Reichau's first draft, only one actually had a decent career as a Viking, and that was Dave Osborne from the University of North Dakota. Chris Thomason of the St. Paul Pioneer Press interviewed Reichau in August of 2020 and asked if players he scouted ever work out in the NFL. He said, sometimes you get lucky. Nobody's 100%, nobody's even close to that. He went on to ask about his easiest draft. Well, in my mind, it was the 1967 draft, the best draft I ever had. I was all alone because Finks was in the hospital, and Bud Grant, they just hired him, so it was Bud and and I in the room, just the two of us. Plus, I had my little charts with me. And that year, we got Clinton Jones out of Michigan State, Gene Washington, also out of Michigan State, a wide receiver, and Alan Page out of Notre Dame. We picked six, seven, eight guys who wound up playing for us. Now, as far as the 1967 draft class working out, later, yes. Right away, no. I say that because statistically, under Grant's first year as head coach, the Vikings went 3-8-3. After the sudden resignation of Van Brocklin, the team ended up last in the division and did not make the playoffs. However, with the changes, they forever changed the face of the franchise. Drafting Alan Page led the team to become the Purple People Eaters, one of the fiercest front foursome on defense in the 1970s. When asked if there was anyone off the traditional radar that ever caught his eye, he mentioned John Randall. One player off the radar who caught my eye was defensive lineman John Randall from Texas A&I. He was signed in 1990 as a free agent. He wound up with seven Pro Bowls and in the Hall of Fame. Thomason went on to write that there were busts too, most notably Ohio State running back Leo Hayden, who was taken in the first round by Minnesota in 1971. He played in seven games that year, with no rushing or receiving stats, and was gone by next season. Thomason also interviewed Bud Grant about the influence of Jerry Reichow. Jerry was a valuable member, said Grant. He was there forever with the Vikings, and he was kind of the behind-the-scenes guy. But he was a credit to the organization, a credit to himself. He was a very perceptive scout. Over the years, Reichow continued to move up the ladder within the organization. In 1975, he became Director of Football Operations, then Assistant General Manager of National Scouting in 1992. Frank Gilliam took over as Director of Football Operations in 92. Prior to his promotion in 92, though, in 89, he and his wife Carolyn moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, because she had a successful interior designer business. In 2006, Reichau changed things up and became a scouting consultant. Reichau officially retired from the Vikings in January of 2019. That makes Bud Grant now the longest tenured employee with the team. Reichau was honored by the Vikings in the final regular season game versus the Detroit Lions in December of 2019. Former punter Greg Coleman had a chance to interview him pre-game. He's probably one of the few players in the history of football to take that journey, from player to scout to executive in the front office for all those years. The only thing he didn't do was coach. But he had a heck of an influence over coaches, and Bug Grant counted on him immensely. This legend spent 58 years of service for the Minnesota Vikings as a scout, as a player, 
as a consultant, as an assistant general manager, director of player personnel, everything that you can think of in the front office. He was drafted out of the University of Iowa, spent eight years in the National Football League. He wore number 89, Jerry Reichow. Give it up for him, folks. Now, Jerry, you've seen this team evolve from Bemidji to TCO Performance Center. What has that been like? Well, it's a whole lot different, I'll tell you that. Bemidji was a long way away, and now it's right here. And, and of course, all the people are here can go over and watch it. And it's, a, it's a different deal altogether. As a scout, your DNA was on most of the drafts, most of the players that came through this organization. What do you remember about a, a couple of those special players? Well, I remember the first one I was involved in. To me, it was our best, or at least the one I had. We got Alan Page. That wasn't a bad choice. Next year, we got Ronnie Gary, and we filled in those teams, and we got to be a pretty strong team there at the end of the 60s, into the 70s. When I mention the name Bud Grant, what comes to mind? He was really a good guy to work with. If you made a bad choice, you never brought it up, and we just worked and worked, and if we didn't, we'd go play racquetball anyway. Jerry, on behalf of the entire Viking organization in Purple Nation, we thank you for your 58 years of service. Purple Nation, give it up for Jerry Reichow. The last question Thomason asked in his interview with Reichow last summer was about retirement. He said, big time, I do miss it. And we got this coronavirus business going on, so you can't do a whole heck of a lot anyway. His wife Carolyn said about him being retired, Are you kidding me? He's getting so bored. That would be the word. He's in great shape, though. He plays golf, he watches sports channels constantly, but that's been a little harder to do now. It was a very hard thing for him at first to give up because he's very attached to the Vikings and very attached to football. Now, Old Reliable is turning 87 this year and still wishes he was with the team. But the virus has slowed things down quite a bit and added a lot of mental pressure on the players and coaching staff. At this point, I bet he probably feels a little relieved. Thanks for listening to the Pigskin Tales podcast. This story was written and produced by your host, Ross Bliley, edited by Nikki Bliley. Sources of information were found online at TwinCities.com, Vikings.com, PhiladelphiaEagles.com, ProFootballReference.com, DecorahNewspapers.com, ABQJournal.com, UND.com, backslash former Notre Dame All-American receiver Jack Snow dies at the age of 62. A book I own titled 100 Things Vikings Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, authored by Mark Craig. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Be sure to follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Ross Fancast. If you like what you hear, you can support me on anchor.fm and Patreon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman aka the football history dude and i wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the sports history network our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear and if you didn't know it already we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics in fact here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network 
Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.